Hello, welcome to 180 with Julia Austin. I am your host, Julia Austin. Every episode of 180 features an interview with someone who either completely changed their mind about a major issue or gained a new perspective on something in their life. I hope that you find these stories to be as inspiring as I have. In this episode of 180, I interview my friend Sam Bilski. Sam struggled with an addiction to crack cocaine, opiates, and alcohol in his early 20s. As of today, Sam is five years sober and has a stable job, so I hope that you find his story to be inspiring. I know that I did. Dude, thank you so much for for doing this with me today. I know like we don't know each other extremely well, and this is um, a big part of your background, so I almost... I almost felt bad when, when Nick was like, did you know that Sam went through this? And I was like, I had no idea. I would love to know the whole story of um, really w- what your life looked like before, um, you know, the the phase that we're obviously going to get into. But you're, you're from Michigan, right? Yeah. So I was born and raised in the Detroit area. And yeah, to give a little bit of background, you know, what my childhood was like. I always do preface this by before I say anything to say like that I acknowledge and I know that like I was very lucky like uh, growing up particularly that all my needs were provided for I had access to good education I always had food on the table at a roof over my head and you know to acknowledge that there's a lot of people who don't have those things they don't have this you know a stable parent in their life but at the same time you know the way I would characterize my experience growing up would be this nice, you know, white suburban family on the outside, but then like a lot of trials and tribulations on the inside. My dad's Jewish. My mom was Irish Catholic. They both are sort of care about appearances culturally. I, I, would, I would say like that's my interpretation of, of how I would describe it. And what that means is like we looked kind of like we were like that nuclear family, but we had a lot of, you know, stuff going on. That wasn't talked about that I think is sort of not as much taboo today than it was then, which was I had a mentally ill parent at the home that suffered with depression, manic depression or borderline personality and alcoholism. My mom in particular could keep it together, uh, you know, when we were making appearances, but at home there was a lot of verbal and physical abuse and drinking on my mom's side of the table. And then my dad was, you know, more of an enabler type. I think in his mind, he couldn't really divorce because, you know, he couldn't risk losing custody and putting us in that situation full time. From the outside, no one would have guessed that these things were going on inside of your home. Um, you know, I don't think that, and I, yes. And I, I think that when you're a kid, I think that it seems normal. It's all, you know, you know, and mm-hmm. so, you don't really know that that people's houses or homes are different and, and this and that. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't think I really acknowledged it. Maybe it was more of a repression type of situation for me. The way that I dealt with a lot of the chaos was through, you know, my own, you know, misbehaving and, and my own, you know, disregard for rules. And I think that's kind of what led into some of the, you know, decisions that I made it in the future. So from there, um, you know, basically, you know, missing a lot of school in middle school, bad grades, um, you know, being put in um, more remedial type of classes was the next direction was my parents sent me to Catholic school. Going to that Catholic school, um, it 
sort of kept me in line for a while. And then college, you know, I got through college pretty, pretty easily. Um, and, you know, I would started blacking out quite a bit, but really where things started to go really downhill was afterwards, like after college, like almost immediately afterwards. After college, you moved to New York. So when the drugs came into play, yeah, it was New York. So, I mean, as soon as I graduated college, um, I mean, my, my ability to function as a human being like went downhill really quick. As far to even say I got fired from my first job out of college after like three months because I just could not show up to work on time. And I was, I fell into like taking opiates, like pills at the time and drinking as a way to sleep because I had insomnia. So that's when that started was shortly after college, you know, I started taking pills to sleep and um, opiates and then drinking with the opiates, which is obviously a dangerous combination. So I started nodding out at my desk, which the term nodding out is like when you're on opiates and you're sort of like, you know, in and out of consciousness, mm-hmm. basically nodding out being that. So the basically the, the, the upper, so the, the cocaine, the crack, all that stuff was a way to keep you up from being on the pills or being on opiates or alcohol. So it's basically like when you couldn't get stuff that would help keep you awake or fall asleep, then you would drink. So that's kind of the cycle that it was in, which, you know, invariably led me to be not be able to pay my rent on time. So may I ask when the first time was that you tried crack? Gotta be honest, I honestly can't remember. It was probably at some point when I was like, just buying drugs in general. Yeah, that's probably when it was. And they were like, well, I don't have this, but I have this cheaper. The thing about crack cocaine that I don't think people realize is that it's such a brief high that that's where it ends up becoming a huge nightmare. It's like you pretty much have to do it constantly. So the consequences from the drugs really started to come mainly from not being able to pay bills and hold on a job. So that's when like you start to see people experience homelessness. May I ask how much you were, um, how much you were spending on, on drugs a week or a month? Like a hundred dollars a day. hundred dollars a day. <gasps> and how much money were you making? It sounds like you were sometimes not making money because you were losing jobs, but. Sometimes not. I mean, being a salesperson, when I did have a job, I tended to do pretty well, but I would, I was, I would do really well for the first three months at a job. And then I would, you know, start to really fall off, you know, miss days of work. I mean, the longest I held down a job up until I got sober was like a little less than a year. Yeah. The longest I held an apartment when I was in New York was about six months, you know, so I got kicked out of a couple places. So, I mean, it was just chaotic, if, if that makes sense. Like there was no stability in my life. None of my family wanted anything to do with me at the time. I can only describe that scenario as being almost like hell on earth. Because, like, the way if you describe addiction to people who don't know, it's like, particularly when you're the behavior of addiction is, you know, causing so much misery in your life. I try to tell people to imagine, like, getting up in the morning and then banging their head on the the wall all day and then waking up and then doing that again. Like, that's kind of what it was like. I mean, it was just about as productive as that. Towards the end of, of when I was in New York, I was staying in a basically a condemned building with a bunch of 
um, homeless Russian immigrants. Um, we were eating raw chicken. We were like doing drugs, obviously. And it was also like an illegal um, hostile to, I mean, so if you can imagine like a door that didn't, wasn't on the wall, but then like a bunch of spray paints on the wall, it's a trap house, basically. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, that's basically what it was. But then you got like, you know, spray paint on the wall and, you know, it was, you know, scary. So throughout this, you, your parents had become aware that you were using? No, I mean, they probably knew. Well, we didn't talk about it. Actually. Okay. You mentioned your family wanting nothing to do with you. So I thought maybe it was because of the drugs, but they, they it didn't was, know. It was in part, it wasn't because, because they weren't there. Right. So they weren't like seeing the day-to-day stuff. Mm-hmm. It was the, like my family, not, a, you know, really being like a super, we weren't like millionaires, you know, we're a nice middle-class family. My dad was, had gotten laid off. He was on, um, you know, limited income, you know, my mom was as well. So, you know, call it the thing that at the time and my relationships now are good that ruined the relationship with my family was, the emotional manipulation to try to get money or resources from them, mm-hmm. like with no consideration, false promises and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that was like calling my brother, my twin brother, for example, and saying that I, you know, I was on psych meds at the time that I didn't have insurance. I needed $200 to get the medication, not getting the medication, buying drugs and alcohol, and then calling him three days later with another sob story, you know, that's basically what, and I think for a lot of addicts, that's what ruins families, you know? So I had to resort to like other ways to make money, which was like, kind of like, you know, hustling on the streets, which in my mind was like, I don't think I did anything that particularly bad. Like I would steal stuff and then pawn it like a pawn shop. Mm -hmm. But I, I would also like sit by the Metro line and like pretend like I was short a couple bucks and stand there for a couple hours, you know, make, make $20 or whatever. All that was kind of in about a year and a half, two year period, you know, before I left New York. And during this, are you still feeling good when you do the drug or are you just trying to avoid feeling terrible? Uh, yeah, it's the second portion. I mean, they stopped the, the, the feeling of drugs and alcohol really it really um, stopped working. Like once I really started to have consequences, it's like once I really started to have like experienced homelessness or getting, getting the little bouts of trouble with the law that I did, um, you know, that was when I was like, okay, I can't not do this. So in the recovery community, they, they talk about this jumping off point, which is basically when you can't live with it or can't live without it. And I was kind of at that point, like I knew I couldn't keep drinking or using drugs, but I also couldn't imagine life without it. And that's kind of how I felt for a long time. So, you know, what ended up happening was after two years in New York, you know, I had that place got raided. Right. So that was kind of like the cops came. It's kind of funny because it was like maybe not to normal people, but like to people like, it was funny to me looking back. Cause it was almost like out of like law and order or some shit like that. Yeah. Cause like it was like the cops kicked in the door and like they had the badges. There's just huge ball, you know, cop in plain street clothes saying, you guys got to get out of here. I don't care where you go. You can't stay here. Well, he was a little nicer than that. You know, he was like, do you have somewhere to go? I was like, 
obviously scared. I was like, yeah. And at that point, I did not have any clean clothes. So, yeah, I mean, so that was another thing that I, I, I kind of skipped over. But a lot the other thing people don't really realize is like when you don't have money and you, you have a lack of, you know, solid foundation, like you don't have money to do laundry. So I got like HR complaints at the companies I was, I'd work for about my smell. Oh, wait, you were still going into jobs when you lived in the trap house eating raw chicken? I was barely hanging on to jobs. I mean, I was work. I was changing jobs like every three months, but I was able to interview well and get jobs. Um, just using my bullshit manipulation basically at the time. It seems like you were very sharp still throughout this and you were able to really appear normal and with it and functional for short periods of time when you needed to. Yeah. So, I mean, I basically could, could do well enough. Yeah to survive essentially. I mean, I wasn't really ever, I never really had money, but I always had a little bit of income for a little bit of time. So it wasn't like I was, you know, one of these people that is high functioning by no means was I, cause I was, I would, like I, like I mentioned, you know, I was living in illegal buildings or on the streets or I was, if I was lucky enough to have a place at the time, it would be, you know, it wouldn't be long. I mean, let me think about the time I was in New York. I had one, two, three, four, five, six. So I lived with six different apartments with six different people that were unfortunate enough to, you know, be in my you know, path at the time that I sort of would skip out on rent after living there for a month. And we're talking like shitty places in New York that cost like 700 bucks a month like mm-hmm. with like five roommates and like buildings mm-hmm. that are falling apart. So they weren't like nice places. One place had bed bugs, you know? So, I mean, like there was a lot of like, you know, really, uh, you know, shitty places, but the, the nice people that lived there at the time that were just trying to make it in New York were, you know, I, I caused their life chaos for a couple months. Um, you know, so. Would there be times when, when you were staying with them that you, were using and, and they detected something strange about your behavior? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a specific, I mean, they, they had to have known. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So but I mean, I was never like, a, I was, I would, I wasn't like a physically confrontational person. I mean, I would defend myself if I needed to, but I wasn't, I was never like overtly violent. This sounds like a very, very scary phase of life. Wow. Did you, Were you scared the whole time or does there come a point in this when something else takes over, like the fear goes away and it's more just the drive to keep finding and and using? Yes, scared. I would say the bigger problem was like the the loss of self or the lack of self. So like my, who I know that I am, you know, as an individual um, versus like how I was behaving creates kind of an internal conflict, I would think is like internal conflict in the sense of I know who I am to my core which is I'm a I'd like to think I'm a nice good person I think everybody likes to think that but my behaviors weren't matching it and so my behaviors weren't I was hurting the people who love me the most I was hurting people who barely knew me at all strangers who I kind of ruined their lives in some instances for not forever but brief periods right Um, and that conflict was really what started to make me feel sick to my stomach. 
you know, I had a coworker that took me to a recovery meeting, a 12 step based meeting. And I thought it was the most ridiculous shit ever, but I left basically sort of procured, you know, curious about it for a while. So all that was within two years. And then what ended up happening was uh, I had basically called my brother and said, can you buy me a plane ticket to Austin, Texas? Because I have a job there. I'm miserable here. And I think that they kind of felt my family kind of felt bad for me. They got me like a, a ticket to go there. I think I flew to Memphis first to sort of get my bearings and then I, where my dad lived. And so then, um, cause he moved after I turned 18 to Memphis, but then, you know, to Texas and, um, kind of when I moved to Texas, you know, that's like the next chapter. Um, I thought that all my problems were just because of New York. And so I sort of forgot about all that shit for a little while. And then I got, I wasn't really doing drugs anymore. I was still drinking quite a bit. And just like that. You got to Texas and didn't do crack for a while. Well, you, you know, I mean, I, I purposefully did cause I kind of kicked it a bit when I went to, to home for, to my dad's place for a few days. Okay. And then, so for a little bit, yes. And so I was just drinking. And so <laughs> I had this like I had a uh, a criminal charge that was pending, a theft charge from taking a taxi and not paying for it. It's mm-hmm. called theft of services. It's it's kind of it's like when you get a new yellow taxi and you don't have your wallet. Basically, mm-hmm. it was a class A misdemeanor. It wasn't really a big deal. But I had this job. I flew to when I got to Austin that I was going to be selling insurance, and my dad was there, and I was with my cousin. We were all drinking. Um, just, just out with my cousin and, um, I got a phone call that said I'd failed the background check. So what happened was my dad and I, he helped me out a little bit. He got me, um, my, a car from his cousin who lived in Austin. So my second cousin, um, it was a 1993 GMC Jimmy. Um, he bought it for like, for me for like 500 bucks or something like that. And then he kind of left me. He's like, all right, you got to figure it out. And so I had found this um, room in North Austin. I ended up getting a different job after struggling for a bit. And um, financially, I got an offer letter. So I was able to sign the lease. And then I ended up, you know, using drugs and all that stuff again. And I ended up getting fired from that job because I showed up to work, you know, nodding out at my desk again. You know, from there, like, you know, I started to fall behind on the rent. I hadn't slept on a bed and years and in this apartment i was i didn't have a bed i was sleeping on the floor in the closet basically i went and walked over to a recovery meeting that was october 21st of 2016 and then on october 27th of 2016 i drank for the last time and used drugs for the last time and then you know it just didn't work anymore i just didn't feel it like it it was crazy it's like you didn't feel high you don't feel drunk um and six then days, I, six days lapsed between the day you walked into a recovery. Six plan. days drank. And didn't six drink. days later, did not feel anything. It just didn't work for me anymore. And I've been sober ever since. I think anyone who listens to this will be pretty surprised to hear how easily you were able to become sober. Now, nothing about any of this sounds easy for a long time, but the fact that there wasn't the drive or the instinct to go back to it. I mean, that you just truly quit cold turkey is not 
something you hear of often? So, I mean, it wasn't easy like that. So I don't want to make anybody think that it was that easy. It was really tough because you're fighting cravings and um, temptations to drink and use for months. But the way that I got sober um, is heavily um, fellowship based. So I had people that I could call. So like the first year of being sober was really tough with like cravings, wanting to drink, not knowing how to cope with the stressors of life. Mm -hmm. But what kept me sober at the time was the people that I knew that were also sober, um, that were young and that had several years sober that were, I could call and they would answer and um, they would help me through that, you know, so everybody has to quit cold turkey at some point you know some people they might need to do a detox i just didn't have resources of that so i kicked the drugs on my own which is not recommended that it can kill you wow so was that very difficult on your body did you feel like you could die i mean you've you know now i mean for the people listening to this you know most of them don't know me i mean i'm, I'm like six one, 240 pounds maybe six feet i think i'm embellishing the height a little bit but i um but I mean, at the time I was my height, like 165 pounds. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I was like pretty skinny for me personally. Yeah. I and mean, that's about, I was, I was, I mean, I was sickly, I would say is how I was described. I mean, there was a lot of other stuff that was really hard about the first year of sobriety. Like I couldn't really afford food. So I lived off of donated bread. So I got really fat of bread, just eating bread and cookies that were donated to these recovery centers, you know, basically had to relearn how to function as an adult what how did I get over that was really through you know the fellowship of the recovery rooms it was through friends that I had it was through the step the 12 steps of the program that I was working and then you know life just got a little bit better here and there and um, life started to get really good so I started comedy when I was 26 Um, my, my whole family they were basically talking to me again so what ended up happening um, when I was 27, um, I had been, you know, doing comedy for about a year. I had been working in this job that I didn't really like, but it was providing much more financial um, success than I thought I, I could ever get. And in May of 2019, uh, my mom, who had never really been able to get sober, you know, I spoke to her on the phone and she had continued that, you know, abusive behavior throughout. And then I spoke to her and I, you know, sent her flowers. I said, happy Mother's Day. So Mother's Day was May 12th. Her birthday is May 11th. On the night of May 11th, you know, she sent me a text saying how grateful she was for the flowers. And she was feeling a little, you know, not great that day in terms of her mood. And then she passed away that night with what I believe to be, you know, a, 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 alcohol or drug related death. But I mean, I can't say for certain. But anyways, so that was like the closure that I needed. Because I'd rebuilt all my relationships. She passed away. And I felt like I did everything I could for her. But so I so I had a drastic change in my attitude towards what I wanted out of life when she died. We you know, we went home to you know, take care of her affairs, um, you know, and something kind of really amazing happened when you have a, a parent and parents in general are hard enough. 
I think with my mom behaving the way that she did, it was really hard to see her as like her own individual self, other than what my resentments and anger towards her were. Her therapist, who she had been seeing for 20 years, um, wanted to see us and gave us this all these manila folders and stuff. And basically, it was like all this stuff from when my mom was a kid. So it was like, you know, pictures, drawings, letters home from college, report cards, this and that. And I was looking at this uh, painting. I get a little emotional thinking about it because um, um, it was just like I kind of realized I was like, holy shit. You know, it was like just like stick figures. It was like her family and stuff. And I was like, my mom, she's a human being. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I never saw that before. It was like, she had her own hopes. She had her own desires. She had her own, you know, wants and what she wanted out of life. And, you know, sometimes things don't turn out the way they, they want them to. But like, she was a person that, you know, things didn't just, just, just for whatever reason, because the circumstances just didn't go the way she thought they would, you know, in life. And I don't know what it was about that, but it changed my entire outlook on life. Wow. That's pretty amazing that the therapist shared that with you guys. Yeah, it was really cool of him. Um, I think he really cared about my mom, you know, and I think he knew he couldn't really help her. Damn, that's a crazy story. I just thought it was interesting that you said seeing those those things from your mom's childhood really made you rethink how you wanted to live your life. Would you, do you know why? What, what was it? Because my mom was always a, a victim of the um it was always a victim of oh woe is me you know this this happened to me life's not fair it's all these other people's fault and i think seeing the photos to me like seeing those paintings meant to me like when she was a kid like she probably didn't think she would end up dying alone you know or she probably didn't think that she would have these conflicting relationships with her children or that she would be, you know, unemployable and, you know, like, I mean, you know, talking about, you know, her life, you know, could, could go on for hours, I'm sure about like, you know, what could have been or wouldn't. But I think what I realized is that the only person that can really change your life, the only person that, you know, can make the best impact on your life is yourself. So what I mean by that is, is like, nobody's going to come and save you. And I think what I learned was that, you know, from my mom's perspective, that thinking like things are, are, are only going to get better if the circumstances meet the way the, the, the circumstances I've imagined in my head, which is almost never the case. And so I kind of realized that like, if I want to live the life and build the kind of life that I want, I have to do it myself, regardless of, you know, my fears or anxieties about, you know, taking that risk. So that was where my change was. And I think seeing those, those, those drawings from when my mom was a kid made me realize that she probably had the opportunity to do that herself, but chose not to. I kind of in my head saw like two different paths of the way that my life could go because I used to get compared a lot to my mom from my siblings and my, my dad and stuff. And I could have down, gone down that path, but if I'm, you know, conscious of my, the way I show up and my behaviors and stuff, then it doesn't have to be that way. And so I think that that's basically, you know, was my perspective shift was I might not accomplish anything I want, 
but I have the ability to at least cultivate the kind of life that I want if I just try and, and, you know, with a little determination, you know, I don't have to end up, you know, 61 years old, you know, and, you know, alone and, and passing away, which that's how it was from my mom's case. Wow. I'm sure that if your mom could know that seeing that stuff impacted you like that, she'd be happy. I hope so. <laughs> well, this was a, this was a really amazing uh, episode. Thank you so, so much for, for sharing that with me. If you want to check out some of Sam's comedy, he has his own podcast called The Samuel Bilski Show. You can also go to samuelbilski.com to check out his stand-up comedy show schedule. If you have your own great 180 story or know someone who does, please submit it to me on Instagram at 180 with Julia Austin.